Let's talk about climate change. A newly released report suggests it's extremely likely that rising temperatures are caused by humans. Climate change is a real and serious issue. Sea levels are rising. The impact of climate change is dangerous. Climate change. All of this with the global warming and the these weather emergencies in effect. The government has to act. And a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. Unprecedented in Earth history. You don't believe that global warming is man-made? In order to avoid planetary catastrophe, global warming alarmist. Emissions of greenhouse gases have to be declining now. Climate Talks with your hosts, Anna, Agiza, and Alex. Today we're going to dive into the Paris Climate Agreement and find out what U.S. cities are doing to address climate change. So what exactly is this agreement? So in December of 2015, 195 nations came together and signed an accord that recognizes the global need to address the threat of climate change. Parties who signed the agreement were asked to set nationally determined emission reduction targets to help keep global temperature rise below a critical level of 2 degrees Celsius. This agreement didn't come out of nowhere. The Paris Accord was the result of nearly 20 years' effort to place climate change on the global political agenda, beginning with the creation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, otherwise known as the IPCC, in 1988. Yeah, and it finally seemed as though the world's leaders were finding common ground on the issue of climate change. Until a few short months ago. Back in June of this year, President Trump announced his plans to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Agreement. In order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Trump's main concern was the element of the accord that required developed countries like the U.S. to assist developing countries in their efforts to reduce emissions, finding the conditions unfair. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries, leaving American workers, who I love, and taxpayers to absorb the cost in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished economic production. This announcement from Trump was followed by a stark reaction from U.S. mayors, who defied the president's decision by reaffirming their commitment to combating climate change. One city in particular has taken a firm stance on continuing efforts to reduce greenhouse emissions, and this city will be the focus of our podcast today. San Francisco has been committed to climate action since the ratification of the 1997 Kyoto Protocol, and they were about to turn back on the progress they have made in the past 20 years. San Francisco wants to improve the sustainability and economic growth can go hand in hand. Before Trump withdrew from Paris in July 2015, Mayor Ed Lee joined nearly 60 other mayors around the world at a climate conference in Vatican City to urge leaders to ratify this Paris Agreement. And here is a clip of him speaking in Vatican City. Well, as mayors, we know that we need to act aggressively to fight climate change and our cities are the foundations and at the front lines of the impacts of climate change. In San Francisco, we have reduced 
our greenhouse gas emissions 23% below the 1990 level. We are so proud of this, especially considering our population has grown by 15% and our economy has grown by 49% over the same time. And as we grow, we are growing sustainably. We are successfully fighting climate change while creating jobs and directly improving the lives of our residents. And it seems that San Francisco's commitment hasn't wavered. Most recently, Mayor Ed Lee attended the Chicago Climate Summit on Tuesday, December 5, 2017, with President Obama. Along with dozens of other mayoral leaders, Ed Lee reaffirmed San Francisco's commitment to the 2015 Paris Agreement. By signing the Chicago Charter, San Francisco pledged to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at least 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025, which is in line with the Obama administration's commitment back when Paris was negotiated in 2015. So it's safe to say that Trump announcing his plans to pull out of the agreement didn't discourage San Francisco? It didn't. In fact, it only seemed to strengthen his commitment. Following the announcement, Mayor Lee came out with a press release which reads, In the absence of federal leadership, San Francisco will continue to take aggressive measures on climate change. Our city is proof that strong action on climate change is good for the planet and good for business. Those are some really powerful words from the mayor. Wasn't there a climate summit of sorts recently held in San Francisco? You're right, Nargiza. Just last week, a group of leaders in business, tech, and government gathered in San Francisco for the Climate Tech Summit, hosted by the New York Times. Here's Mayor Ed Lee speaking at the summit on November 30th, where he discussed how the consequences of Trump's withdrawal will affect San Francisco and other cities. Now we have a challenge. We are international cities, and you know, it really hurts when we are prevented from contributing as part of our country to the international challenge of global climate change. And I think the, the kids are getting it, the families are getting it, and they want me to do even more now and step up. Basically, what we are now seeing is thousands of cities, including San Francisco, declaring we are still in. In that challenge, mayors step up, governors step up, uh, education institutes step up, the private companies all step up. We're open to collaborate for the goals that we all believe in, this shows that a real deal of the country still intends for the USA to be a leader in climate change action. These movements now represent more than 127 million Americans spanning all 50 states. And San Francisco really intends to be a leader in this movement. And, in fact, it needs to be a leader. In our next segment, we're going to talk about San Francisco's unique geographic vulnerability to climate change and dive into the specific measures that the city is taking to adapt to sea level rise. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of Earth and Environmental Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. I had a rough day, but that's life. Hello, and welcome back to Climate Talks. In the last segment, we introduced the dilemma surrounding the Paris Climate Agreement and heard the reactions from Mayor Lee of San Francisco, who intends to continue the battle against climate change. Now we are going to learn about San Francisco's particular vulnerability to the effects of climate change and the actions that the city is taking to adapt. So Nargiza, why don't you tell us a little bit about this? Thank you, Alex. 
Well, in the last century, sea level has risen 8 inches around the San Francisco Bay Area and Pacific Coast. By the end of this century, it most likely to rise an additional 36 inches. And this is something that we need to address now. As Professor Gary Griggs of the University of California, Santa Cruz states, all ice melts at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. That's why San Francisco is continuing its leadership on climate change even after Trump's announcement by focusing on the immediate and long-term threats of sea level rise and associated coastal flooding. In 2013, Mayor Ed Lee appointed a sea level rise technical committee to begin to address the city's vulnerability. This committee developed the sea level rise action plan that provides the foundation and guidance to develop citywide adaptation. The plan, which will be completed by summer 2018, will include the protection of valuable buildings and fund sourcing and implementation timelines. You can find the full adaptation plan on the city's website. You know, I read that San Francisco estimates that climate change threatens to cause $75 billion worth of infrastructure damage, so it seems like the adaptive measures being taken here are definitely worth it. I definitely agree with you, Alex. One cool innovative program I heard about is the Bay Area Resiliency Design Challenge, which San Francisco launched just last year in order to elicit more creative responses to waterfront development projects. Perhaps most interesting is a project called Treasure Island. This 450-acre development will transform a former military base into a community designed as a model of sustainable living. All buildings and streets will be elevated and there will be perimeter protection and inter-drainage improvements for a 35-year horizon designed to accommodate future sea level elevation increases. That sounds like a place that I would invest some real estate in. But how might flooding affect transportation? In a big city, limiting transportation could harm the local economy just as much as damage to infrastructure. The city has definitely taken a special interest in protecting means of transportation in case of flooding. The nine-county San Francisco Bay Area, home to about 7 million people, is the nation's fifth most populated urban center. Its economic culture and landscape are linked with a vital system of public infrastructure, connecting the shoreline communities to each other and to the rest of the region. Several plans are in place to protect highways. For example, the Ocean Beach Master Plan aims to retreat portion of the Green Highway and reroute it behind the zoo. It also recommends improving natural infrastructure such as dunes and vegetation and replacing roads and parking lots with open space and bicycle and pedestrian paths. Also, they are reconstructing parks on Pier 70. New landscape designs aim to accommodate end-of-century sea level rise by reconstructing major portions of the shoreline for flexible recreation and habitat use, so the bay can flow into the park without damage. Other projects are still in the planning stage but hope to create a resilient bay shore with a 100-year horizon. They are also taking strong measures to protect the roads from plotting, but also taking measures to protect airports. That's right. San Francisco International Airport has done a great deal of work to protect the airfield from flooding. Major portions of San Francisco's eight-mile-long shoreline are being protected by seawalls, berms, and sheet piles. Recognizing the flood risks, the airport is launching a new shoreline protection program to address these deficiencies and to protect the airport from extreme tide and from storm flooding risks, as well as long-term flooding risks from sea level rise. That's really interesting. That leaves me wondering if cities that may not be as impacted by sea level rise are giving climate action the same kind of attention and support. 
continuing along the lines of flood risks, we wanted to take a more specific look at the impact that potential changes in climate would have on the San Francisco population. How does it affect public health? Which groups will be most impacted? And what is San Francisco doing to address this? We'll be right back. You may have heard of global climate change. Whether or not people accept that humans are causing global warming, most folks have an opinion about it. Welcome back to Climate Talks. So, before the break, we were taking a look at the potential impact of sea level rise and what San Francisco was doing to mitigate and adapt to the risk. Now, we are going to narrow in more specifically on the human sphere and how climate change might affect human health. Anna? San Francisco is making an effort to specifically address how climate change is going to affect human health. In 2010, the San Francisco Department of Health created the Climate and Health Program to identify the scope of local climate impact and associated potential health outcomes. So they've really been taking a look at this for seven years now. The San Francisco Climate and Health Profile notes, Although all San Franciscans will be affected by climate change, certain San Franciscans will be affected more than others. Residents that live, work, or recreate along San Francisco's waterfront are more vulnerable to flood risks, and those areas with poor air quality or limited access to open space are vulnerable to heat-related hazards. In particular, the urban poor are most vulnerable to climate change, and its impacts amplify socioeconomic and racial disparities. The department calls this inequity of impact the climate gap. In 2015, San Francisco Department of Public Health established the Community Resilience Indicator System to identify vulnerable areas in most need of climate intervention. Addressing the needs of vulnerable populations is one of the eight of the main risks that the Department of Health is addressing. Other risks specific to human health are respiratory diseases caused by air pollution, an increase in waterborne illnesses due to flooding, and an increased exposure to pathogens and toxins of food due to changing weather patterns. Wow, these are some risks I never would have even considered. Me neither. But they really seem to have a thorough plan in place. Although the public health department is, of course, addressing more well-known risks, such as drought, extreme heat, and the resiliency of public health buildings. With all of these risks we talked about, it makes sense for San Francisco to devise a serious strategy in mitigating the human contributions to climate change. In 2015, San Francisco revealed a climate action framework called 05100 Roots. This plan is designed to help the city reduce its carbon footprint through innovative policies, programs, and partnerships. The 05100 Roots strategy refers to a zero landfill waste 50% of trips made by sustainable modes, 100% renewable energy, and carbon sequestration through urban forestry. The name alone has a nice ring to it, 05100, and it also sounds like a fairly comprehensive plan. Rather than focusing on just one or two strategies, it lays out four distinct goals, each of which helps address climate change. But let's get into the details. Let's start with trash. For some time, San Francisco has followed a pretty progressive waste management plan. San Francisco plans to become zero waste by 2020, which is a pretty ambitious but awesome goal. What is zero waste? It means sending next to nothing to landfills or incinerators. San Francisco has an ambitious goal to be waste-free by 2020. In 2007, they required the use of compostable plastic, recyclable paper, and reusable checkout bags by supermarkets and drugstores, expanding the law in 2012 to add 10-cent tax on all bags. 
Ultimately, this meant 5 million fewer plastic bags used by consumers every month. In 2009, San Francisco passed an ordinance that made it mandatory for all residents to sort trash into landfill, recyclable, and compostable. The city requires all San Franciscans, whether in restaurants, hotels, or apartment buildings, to separate their trash. The city also offers informational assistance, training, and trash disposal bins. And those aren't the only measures being taken. Other laws are geared towards the municipal construction and internal government waste prevention. For instance, the city banned the use of styrofoam and other brands of polystyrene foam in city departments and food service operators because these materials are not recyclable and don't break down naturally in the environment. You know, one cool policy I read about was an opt-in agreement for phone book deliveries. Rather than automatically delivering phone books to homes, residents have to self-select for these books. It's an easy way to curb unnecessary waste, because really, who even uses phone books anymore? I sure don't. So, with all of this in mind, we see that San Francisco is on target to meet their goal of zero waste by 2020. Already in 2010, San Francisco had achieved 80% diversion from landfills, meaning that 80% of all discarded materials were being composted or recycled. This set the record in North America, and if they succeed, they will be the first city in the world to be completely waste-free. But the local government cannot do it alone. San Francisco is partnering with companies like Recology, which is a collection and processing provider, to help incentivize both residents and businesses to reduce waste. Let's touch upon sustainable transportation, which is the 50 in San Francisco's 050-100 plan. The total emissions for the city's transportation sector in 2010 was over 2.2 million metric tons, which amounted to 43% of their total carbon footprint. So obviously, this is a huge opportunity for the city to reduce its carbon emissions. San Francisco has set the goal of shifting 50% of trips to non-automobile transportation. To get there, the city has expanded and encouraged public transit and expanded bike lanes. A number of specific innovative strategies stood out to me. The city government has partnered with employers to increase the distribution of employee public transit passes and also expanded cash-out programs for parking spaces, both of which incentivize employees to leave their cars at home and use public transit instead. The city even requires hotels to offer visitor public transit passes. Measures like these are putting San Francisco closer to reaching 50% sustainable transit, although my one point of criticism is a lack of clear timelines. Yeah, I agree. Having specific target years for achieving percentage of residents using buses and trains would benefit the city in reaching this goal. But I think San Francisco is on the right track. Earlier on in the podcast, we heard clips from the mayor of San Francisco talking about the city's commitment to meet the emission reduction goals of the Paris Agreement. But what exactly is the city's strategy to curb the use of fossil fuels? Luckily, we were able to correspond with the San Francisco Department of Environment's Sarah Peters. One thing she highlighted was the fact that even before the treaty was created, San Francisco was one of the first cities in the world to codify greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. Using the 1990 emissions baseline, the city pledged to cut emissions 25% by 2017, 40% by 2025, and 80% by 2050. These are some really ambitious goals and quite unprecedented when you think about it. 
That's right. We already talked about the specific threat that climate change has on the Bay Area. That's why San Francisco's goal is to implement 100% renewable energy by 2030 via solar panels and electrifying thermal energy supply. To help cities make informed infrastructure investment decisions, the Siemens company has developed the city performance tool to identify the best efficiency technologies from the transport, building and energy sectors the most effective in order to mitigate CO2 emissions, improve air quality, and add new jobs in the local economy. There are three top performing technologies in reducing CO2 emissions from transport, building, and energy sectors. These are electric car sharing, home automation, and electric heat pumps. Under the most ambitious but attainable scenario, San Francisco saturates 80% of rooftops citywide with solar panels and replaces 80% of carbon-based heat sources with electric heat pumps. This would allow San Francisco to reduce CO2 emissions by 80.6% for the 1990 baseline, meeting their 2050 goal. Implementing building automation also reduces energy consumption by installing sensors to control lighting, to determine how much heating and cooling is needed in a room, and to determine whether appliances should be turned on or off. Although expenditures between today and 2050 would roughly total $51 billion, investments in 34 building and transport technologies would generate more than 420,000 full-time equivalent jobs. I know that in May of 2016, San Francisco launched the Clean Power San Francisco Community Choice Aggregation, or CCA, program, which provides residents and businesses with electricity generated from a higher percentage of renewable sources than the grid baseline. Participants have the option to upgrade their electricity supply to 100% renewable energy, but they may also opt out. Clean Power San Francisco is the fourth CCA program in California, and the ability to manage electricity sourcing is a major new lever in enhancing San Francisco's capacity to realize their goal of 100% renewable energy by 2030. Achieving 80% reduction by 2050 must be a collaborative effort. Residents, businesses, and local government all will need to invest in technologies such as electric cars, solar panels, home automation, and even weatherization. San Francisco is known for its natural beauty. The urban green spaces provide essential services such as cleaning our air, filtering and slowing flood waters, and reducing greenhouse emissions. For this reason, San Francisco launched a program that helps heal the planet by creating a carbon sink to pull carbon dioxide out of the air. They represent the root part of the overall climate strategy. How they are going to do it? By planting trees, removing concrete, and planting native gardens that enhance the ability of the soil to absorb CO2. Clearly, San Francisco is taking aggressive measures to address the potential impact of climate change. Zero, fifty, one hundred. Keep it simple. And this is important because if the federal government is not going to step up and address global warming, cities must. I'm excited to keep an eye on the progress of this city and see what it can achieve in the coming years. Thank you all for tuning in with your hosts, Anna, Agiza, and Alex. We've enjoyed having you.